being on television? Those pills you're taking will kill you before you ever get on, for Christ's sake. Big deal? You drove up in a cab? Did you see who had the best seat? I'm somebody now, Harry. Everybody likes me. Soon, millions of people will see me and they'll all like me. I'll tell them about you and your father, how good he was to us. Remember? It's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to lose weight, to fit in a red dress. It's a reason to smile. Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only got one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined by Zach Jumper to discuss Helen Burstyn's Oscar-nominated performance in the 2000 movie Requiem for a Dream. Zach, good to have you on the podcast. Thanks. It's it's awesome to be here. I'm so excited. Yeah, absolutely. So am I. Uh, so so what? Uh, first off, let's talk a little bit about why you chose this movie. Um, this movie has always been one that whenever I watch it, it just like sticks with me. It stays in my head. I'm always thinking about it for weeks after I watch it, and I think Ellen Burstyn's performance in this is is a big reason as to why it's so memorable to me. Yeah, yeah. Her part in this movie uh, really sticks with you, uh, for better or worse. It is hard to forget her whole story in this movie and her performance in particular. Yeah, it's it's insane. I've seen it, I think, three times now, and each oh, time it just gets better. Yeah, I mean, I, this was the second time I had seen it. I had seen it a few years ago for the first time, and I think I'm good. It's a good movie, but I don't know when the next time I'm going to be itching to rewatch this movie will be. But yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's a good one. So let's, uh, I'm just going to go down the basics of the movie. We're going to be talking about Requiem for a Dream uh, from the year 2000, directed by Darren Aronofsky, written by Aronofsky and Hubert Selby Jr., adapted from the novel by Hubert Selby Jr., Starring Ellen Burstyn, Jared Leto, Jennifer Connelly, Marlon Wayans, Christopher McDonald, Mark Margolis, Louise Lasser, Sean Gallette, Keith David. It premiered May 14th at Cannes. Uh, it premiered out of competition at Cannes before opening wide on October 6th, 2000. So uh, let's start off our first segment talking about Ellen Burstyn. So let's, let's really get into this performance. Uh, what are your initial thoughts on her in this movie? Initial thoughts, really, it, it just amazes me how she just goes into this character so well, because I, don't, I obviously don't know her as a person, um, but I don't see her as this kind of person in other performances. But Absolutely, yeah. Like, so, like, with most of her performances that you see in other movies, she's a very strong-willed character most of the time. She's very, like, takes no bullshit on top of things, especially in her later years, she's played sort of like a, no-nonsense older figures and in this performance she's completely not that she's very sort of frail like still energetic she still has mm -hmm. life to her but it's a very a very different type of performance it really is i think each scene like for going from the start to the finish adds something to her character and she really brings something else out in the character in each scene that we see yeah. Yeah, you see a lot of this uh, character. Uh, I mean, it's a very 
very stark transformation that she has over the course of this movie. But yeah, she does a lot of very interesting things from scene to scene, uh, which I, I noticed um, in this go around that you see that very visually. Like, obviously she has the whole physical transformation in this movie. She's in different, like they had different prosthetic necks and body suits that she was in, but her hair each time gets a little bit, well, she dyes her hair at some point at a certain point in the movie. She dyes it orange, not red. She makes a point that it's orange, but it gets redder and redder from there on out and more like unnaturally red. And Mm -hmm. then hopefully her roots start coming in and it gets more frazzled the more she loses control. Yeah. a lot of a lot of that is also shown through her movements too like you can see it in her eyes a lot when she's acting um as the movie goes on her eyes start moving really quick and she's like looking around a lot like she's scared of almost everything that's around her and it we should probably talk about why uh she's changing we haven't really i mean i assume a lot of people have seen this one this is one of the more popular movies that i get to talk about but do you want to sort of break it down for people that might not have seen it, what actually happens to her in this movie? Yeah, so she gets a, um, a phone call that she's going to be on television, um, and she wants to wear this red dress that she wore to her son's graduation, but she doesn't fit into the dress anymore. So she starts on a diet, and it's not going very well. She's not eating a lot, but she's always been used to this comfort of food because she doesn't do much else. So she goes to a doctor who gives her um, diet pills, but these diet pills make her very jittery, make her have a lot of energy and they start affecting her life in just crazy ways that you don't expect from something a doctor is giving her. Yeah. There was something that I was reading about how how that storyline sort of connects with most of this movie is about heroin. The other sort of uh, main three characters are all involved in some way with heroin, but uh, Aronofsky specifically wanted to sort of juxtapose that kind of addiction with hard drugs, as we sort of see them, against something like someone who's trying to kick a diet or uh, stop eating as much, and how those sort of addictions are portrayed and how they affect people similarly. The quote was something to the effect of how someone who's trying to kick a heroin addiction has the same sort of mannerisms as someone who's trying to go on a diet and stop eating sugars and stuff like that and how that affects the body in similar ways with withdrawals. Yeah. I, I really was shocked by how it starts off with, we see the heroin addicts uh, just not normal. Like they're not, they're very jittery and everything like that. But we see Ellen Burstyn and her character come into that as she gets more addicted and as she starts taking more and as she starts losing her mind over these diet pills. Yeah, exactly. And a a lot of how that's done is not just in the performance, but in the direction. And uh, you see, it's it's a very interestingly edited movie. And I think it works really well to uh, underline what it's trying to say in the text. But there's scenes that we see of Ellen Burstyn moving around her apartment that are sped up really quickly where she's very quickly moving throughout this space and cleaning and cooking and exercising and all this stuff. And eventually after she sort of comes down from the high of the pills, like they're really giving her all this energy in her life. And then eventually they sort of stop working as well because she's, her body has gotten used to them. And there's a scene where she goes to the doctor 
and everything else is slowed down. The doctor walking into the room is slowed down, but her movements are still really quick. So she's now seeing the world like slow motion around her. And it's like, it's a really interesting way to sort of depict that because we're seeing it almost from her point of view in that shot. It's a very skewed shot up close next to her. So we're seeing that same sort of visual representation of the world from her point of view, which I think is, and her acting in that scene is really fantastic. The way her face sort of contorts and twists about. Yeah, we, we also get to see that in, in the scene where her room sort of falls apart and, and like the, the show comes to her room. We see like the cameras pointed directly at her face, like a fish lens. And then it like 180s and shows what she's looking at. And it really just contrasts like what we see in her and what she's seeing. And it shows like this downfall of what her mind has become. Yeah. And that's really a fantastic scene where the set of her apartment sort of mm-hmm. comes apart, part like one part at a time. The TV goes away and then the walls go away and all this. Mm. And then uh, Christopher McDonald and the idealized version of herself that she's been sort of hallucinating come out of the screen and the audience is all there and the whole production crew sort of starts doing a conga line around her and tormenting her about how how her mind is going and the whole no they're all they're all laughing at everything in her house they're all laughing at her like little decorations and how her apartment looks just like a complete mess the whole time and i think a different actress, someone who's not very in tune with what this character is doing, someone who's not Ellen Burstyn would have just sort of played that as very whimpery, very like scared, but you don't really get much else from that. But even in that scene where she's having this hallucination around her, she's still like kind of fighting back almost like she's, she's like justifying it all. She's almost apologizing to these hallucinations for her situation, for Mm -hmm. the trinkets in her room. But it's a very like, It's a a very interesting way to play that scene. I think it's done really well. I think she really uh, brings a lot, even in those moments of weakness, that like you can see that this woman has, still has a personality to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the whole time she's saying, like she's defending why she has these things. She's like, oh, I I don't go out much. Oh, I don't do much. Like I I can't get more than this. Um, And it, it shows like layers to this character that again, as you said, somebody else might not have, somebody else would just have a frightened face on the whole time, not be able to do what she did. Yeah. And she's like, she's treating it like a regular conversation. She's like almost like, I mean, obviously it's a hallucination. The people from the TV are in her apartment, all staticky laughing at her stuff. And she's just sort of like talking to them like, Hey, (laughs) put that down. It's very, it's a really great scene right in the middle of her sort of descent and then obviously from there it gets even worse for her Mm -hmm. mentally let's jump back to like earlier in the movie before any of this happens the opening scene the opening scene to this movie which i believe is also the opening scene to the book where jared leto her son breaks into the apartment locks her in the closet and steals the tv which i guess he's done before to sell Mm -hmm. money even in that scene in that kind of scene she's like pleading with him in the same kind of way where like she knows that that's not how it's supposed to be, but she's still treat like like that's the situation she's in, so she's going to fight back, but like in a not really combative way. Yeah, she she locks the TV up, 
but she gives away the key immediately when he asks for it. Yeah, yeah, because it's not locked up for him. It's locked up for the burglars, like she mm-hmm. says. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of that scene, when he leaves with the TV, she has a line that I think is really indicative of Sarah's point of view. This isn't happening. And if it should be happening, it would be all right. So don't worry, Seymour. It'll all work out. You'll see already. In the end, it's all nice. It's a really interesting introduction to the character. Yeah, and I think you can sort of apply that to her mindset for the rest of the movie. Um, Not that she's fine with her world falling apart, but that the way in which her character keeps fighting back, even like just talking to these hallucinations, it's kind of like she's sort of accepting it in herself that this is what she's become, even if she doesn't like it. And even before we see these hallucinations that she's having, she still talks to her uh, dead husband. There's a scene when later on, a really great scene where Leto comes and they have a very emotional conversation, but she turns to empty seat of the kitchen and starts talking to Seymour. Like, isn't our son doing so well? Isn't he doing great? And like, she knows he's dead. She doesn't like believe that he's there. And she makes as much clear in the conversation that she knows that he's dead, but she still, she likes talking to him because it's a way for her to sort of cope with her life. Yeah, and she does that later too when she's hallucinating that she's on the television show. She's like saying, oh, hi to my husband, but knowing that he's still dead. Yeah. yeah. And that's that scene that you were talking about where Jared Leto comes back. Um, and this is like the first time that we see them with like a good relationship. And she, at, But he knows what she's doing when she's getting super jittery and she's grinding her teeth. He notices this and he he can tell that something's not going well for her. But again, in that scene, she fights back against him, not in a rude way, but in a like, trust me, I know what I'm doing kind of way. Yeah, she's justifying essentially her pill addiction to him by saying, oh no, it, it makes me happy. It's, it's something that I can, what, what's the line? It's a, it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's something to keep me going. It's, I have this goal that I want to lose weight so that I can be on TV and look good. And that's what's keeping me going. And if I have to take these pills, if I have to starve myself, Mm -hmm. so be it. I'll still get to feel happy. And it's it's really heartbreaking. It's such a heartbreaking movie. I know it has a reputation for being just like devastating, but it really does. Yeah, it is so heartbreaking. And, just every single scene, almost every scene that, that we see her in, I feel like she says, oh, but I can almost zip it all the way up. I can almost yeah. fit in the red dress. It, it, and, it's so close and it's like almost there, almost there. And then she pushes herself too far and it goes so horrendous for her. And mm-hmm. it's just awful. I think, I think that one scene where she, um, again, the one where Jared Leto comes over and they have the conversation, that, that's like the biggest scene when I when I watch it, that's the one that I like I'm left with the most because we it really shows that she thinks this is something good for her, but it's not. And and she gets throughout the conversation, she gets more and more uh, strange. And we just it feels like her character is losing herself that we saw in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, but even like even as it goes on and as Leto is like, you need to stop taking those pills, they're bad for you. She's not like angry with him. She's not hurt. She's just like, no, no, you don't understand. It's okay. It's okay. And like, 
she's still sort of delusional in that sense, mm-hmm. even later on when she's told by the doctors and by, by everyone else that she's not doing okay. She still believes that she's okay. Yeah. And not to jump ahead to the literal last moments of the movie, but I'm going to jump ahead to the literal last moments of the movie. Uh, so in the sort of final 15 minutes, it jumps back and forth between the four main characters. It's a montage of them all suffering horrendously, just like the worst possible condition they could all be pushed to, they're pushed to. And her version of that, she's uh, put in a hospital and they're giving her electroshock therapy because she's had a mental breakdown. And even after all of that, after all of this, she's gone through that, she's sitting in the hospital and her hallucination still, she's on the TV and... Um, I like I had forgotten that this was how the movie ends, that this was the last moment of it. And it actually like I, I no pun intended, burst into tears uh, because she's on the TV uh, and Christopher McDonald is like, we have a very special guest for you. He just got married. He has a kid. It's your son, Harry. And obviously we know that that's not what ends up uh, happening to Harry. Mm-hmm. But he comes out and they hug. And just like even when she's gone through all this, Hers, she still has that idealized fantasy version of how things are going to end up. She still thinks it's going to end up okay for them. And it's, it's so depressing. It really is. Like we see like just before those last moments where it seems like if you just took that scene out of context, that seems happy. But just before that, we watch her and all the people that she loves, all their lives are falling apart. Nothing is going right for them. They're in jail. They're hurt. Um, they, they're never coming back from what we just watched. But she's still holding on to this hope of, oh, I can fit into the red dress. I'll be on TV. My son will be happy. It'll be okay. But it, it is devastating, that last scene. Yeah. Um, and you see before that as well, before she's brought into the hospital, uh, she knows she at some point is supposed to be on TV and she hasn't gotten the call back. So she's, she gets into the dress. By the end, like, she's fitting in the dress and it's, like, loose on her. She's mm-hmm. lost so much weight that it's, like, sagging around her. And she's in that, and her hair is frazzled. Her roots are coming in gray again. And she just sort of stumbles down to the train and is yelling at everyone that she's going to be on TV. She gets to the TV station and tells them she's going to be on TV. And they end up, like, having to call security to escort her to the hospital because she's having a mental breakdown but like even through all that she doesn't lose her conviction that things are going to end up okay she's going to be on tv and it's all going to be happy and it's yeah no it is it is a a very fascinating just sort of descent for her Mm -hmm. yeah i think a big point in those last in that last act is whenever somebody tries to ask her who she is or why she's there even if she gets one sentence out that sort of makes sense and she's like talking or trying to help herself, it immediately goes to, Oh, I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be on television. Exactly. And it, it's, it's just insane to watch. And she just does it so well. Yeah, no, it's a, it's one of the greatest performances that I get to talk about on this podcast. It is just, Yeah. Like, there's no words to describe it. You come away from this movie just heartbroken and frazzled, and there's no way to... It's really hard to describe what makes it work so well, but it just does. It just hits you over the head from, like, 
pretty early on. Although for the first maybe half of the movie, she's still pretty competent. Mm-hmm. She's like funny too. She's she's actually <laughs> really funny in the first half of this movie. Like when she's on the diet at first, the diet she goes on before she starts taking the diet pills. Her breakfast is half a grapefruit, an egg, and a cup of coffee with no sugar. And we see that it's sort of, she's sitting at the table and sort of staring down at them all on the plate. And like, she, we don't see her eat it, but we see the grapefruit and it cuts to the grapefruit is empty. And the egg, and then it cuts to the egg has been eaten. And the coffee, and then it cuts to an empty coffee cup. But then later on, she's hanging out with all her other old woman friends outside their apartment complex. And one of them says something about her uh, making her cheat on her diet. And she goes, oh, no, it's okay. I'll just sneak in another grapefruit later. (laughs) (laughs) And when she does the hair, when her friend helps her dye her hair, and it turns out orange instead of red, and she goes, Mm -hmm. if this is red, what's orange? What's orange hair look like? And like... She has a presence in that first half of the movie, it, which is why the very delusional uh, sort of broken woman that she becomes is all the more heartbreaking because it's not what you might have gotten uh, in another movie where an older character has that sort of descent where they start out not all there and then they just get worse. She starts out like snappy, even if she is like frail, she still has like a personality to her. And I think... Yeah, every scene that she's in with her with her friends or with that other like the group of old ladies, she she's always just joking and having fun and they're supporting her in what she's doing. And when at the end we see her friends finally see her and what she's become from that she just has lost everything that they knew she Yeah, they get called from the hospital to come see her. And we see them standing out in the waiting room and then they turn and see her when she comes out and they just look horrified. And then later we see them sitting outside on the bench, just like crying and hugging each other. Like this woman that we knew is gone now. She's Mm -hmm. just not the same person and never will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's again, heartbreaking. (laughs) There's no, there's no better way to put it. This is just a very heartbreaking movie. And especially her part is Mm -hmm. just brutal it really is yeah i i remember thinking like when we see her friends hugging and crying after they saw her like why is that such a sad scene we don't know much about these friends them being sad shouldn't do a lot for us but it does because of how much we've seen that they've had an impact on her life and how her downfall has affected the people around her including her son and them just hugging is just horrifying Especially because I think one of them is the one that ends up recommending the diet, the uh, diet pills. The doctor, yeah. Yeah. And just knowing that, oh, I'm the reason this woman is gone, essentially. Yeah. Just that must be just awful. You mentioned that she does a lot of uh, facial acting in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think a lot of that especially comes out in the ending montage, where her whole section... She's in the hospital before they put her on electroshock therapy. Like they have someone's injecting a feeding tube into her because she won't eat the food they give her. All the nurses that come and visit her are very uncaring, just talking to each other, basically acting like she doesn't exist. And she does like, she doesn't have any lines because she's too far gone by then. So all of the acting she does in that, it's just in her eyes and very subtle facial movements. 
And I, I think that's done really well. That really conveys a lot of the fear and the pain and the confusion that she has in that time. Yeah, I think if you compare her facial movements in those last moments to when she was hallucinating, you can kind of see that it's similar and you can see that she's feeling that same fear that she felt with those hallucinations being on drugs. And now that she still doesn't know where she is, what's going on um, in the hospital, she's confused, she's frightened. And she really, really shows that through her eyes and her mouth and everything that she's doing. Yeah. Uh, she like said at the time of this movie that this was the hardest role she had ever taken. Like it was even more brutal on her than filming the exorcist which was very famously a like an impossible shoot for uh-huh. everyone involved i think she was like sick during part of it because of how strenuous that role was on her and the fact that this that she would consider this an even harder role than that really just sells how much she dedicated to this i think there was another quote from her where she said this was uh the character like there were a few moments while she was filming where she basically lost herself to the character, where she was so uh, involved in a scene that basically the character took over and was the one guiding the scene, which uh, you can really see. I think one of those scenes is uh, the monologue that she has with Jared Leto in the apartment, which Mm -hmm. an interesting fact about that, that whole scene uh, where she's talking back and forth with him about how she's someone now, everyone likes her. She has, she's going to be on TV and that's what's driving her now that her husband's dead and her son never visits. That was all done in one take. They, they did a few takes of it. They did a couple uh-huh. takes, but because she had done, she, did, she delivered them all slightly differently so you couldn't really pull from them all. So they pulled from all one. And there's a moment in that scene where the camera sort of drifts away and defocuses on her. And at the time when they were filming, Aronofsky went to uh, the cinematographer, Matthew Libatique, and asked him, like, like why did you do that? But then he saw that it was because uh, the performance was so effective in the scene that like, he had to look away because he was crying so much that the screen was tearing up and he couldn't see what he was filming. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it's that harrowing of a performance that the people on set involved, like not seeing it processed through the editing sphere, like even just being in the room with that is too much to be able to control, which I don't blame him. It's a yeah, it's <laughs> hard to watch. Yep. That, that scene definitely brings out a lot of emotion. And like, I, I felt so just like sad for the character because like as she's going, she's saying, oh, my life isn't great, but I finally found something that's making it better. Um, but we know as an audience that that's not going to make it better. And we see Jared Leto, he, his character is realizing that in the movie. It's just, it's devastating. Yeah, and that's something that really uh, sets this performance apart, I think, from a lot of other performances that people cite as being very emotional, is that in that scene, even though it's hard for us to watch, she's not crying. She's not like depressed about her life. It's that the juxtaposition of her being so happy and so excited and that we know that there's like that she's wrong, essentially, that all the things that she's saying are going great in her life 
aren't and eventually won't go that way and just but she's not sad in that sad scene and i think that really uh sets it apart from something else uh like like another movie that someone else might say is hard to watch because it's so depressing yeah in that scene i think even if it's your first time watching it you can kind of feel that it's not going to go how she's saying it's going to go and just maybe not to the extreme that it eventually does but you can tell that something's not going to go well yeah do you want to just talk about ellen burston in general about her career just as a whole Sure. I don't think I've seen that much of her, but yeah. Yeah. Um, this, so this is her sixth Oscar nomination. Uh, she had been nominated before for The Last Picture Show, The Exorcist. Uh, she won for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And then Same Time Next Year and Resurrection. And this was a 20-year gap between her last nomination and this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a comeback for her almost, at least a comeback to the Oscars. Um, but yeah, no, she's she's... Uh, one of my favorite actresses, especially uh, in the era of the 70s and 80s and her really being that type of headstrong actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't have much more to say beyond that. I, I just think she's really great and I think this is a really interesting departure for her. Yeah, I think, um, especially with something like The Exorcist, it's such a different kind of performance and it really shows like the level of acting that she can bring to a movie, um, especially given that those were made so far apart that she can still bring this sense of energy and passion to a film that I don't think many people can do. Yeah, it's a very energetic performance in this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to say just in general about her performance specifically uh, before we move on to the rest of the movie? I don't think so. I don't have anything that I can think of right now. Meg Marion, welcome. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Yes, sir. Okay for work. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Yes, sir. Okay for work. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Yes, sir. Okay for work. Can you hear me? Can you see me? Yes, sir. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the rest of Requiem for a Dream. Uh, so do you have one particular aspect you want to highlight first, a performance or a formal element or something? Um, I think with this like being the third time that I've seen it, um, there was some stuff that stuck out to me that I, I don't think I noticed as much. And one of those was like, the amazing sound editing and how well it was done and there's just so there's so much to talk about with the sound and it's it's insane it's not a movie that sounds good necessarily (laughs) but it's a movie that the sound is done really well like you mentioned um in that scene where leto goes to visit burston in her apartment it goes really well at first they're happy to see each other they're sort of talking about where their lives are going but then he notices that she's like clicking her teeth and her jaw is making this really gross like Mm -hmm. noise and it drowns out everything else. Her voice goes away. uh, Any of the ambient noise goes away and all you hear are the sounds of her teeth and it's, it just cuts deep inside. Like you can feel it inside your bones almost. It's that just like grueling 
of sound design and that's carried on throughout the rest of the movie like that kind of very yeah it's so it's so effective in just bringing out emotion and i think one thing that really sticks out to me is when they're doing these quick edits of when like jared leto and them are taking the heroin like they're they show them opening bottles and putting lighters on and all that stuff like really quickly and it has a lot of big sounds in your face yeah and then later in the movie they start to do that with um sarah and her opening pill bottles and her popping pills and how it dilating Mm -hmm. yep yep and it it kind of brings those together and uh, makes it all seem like one thing like the heroin and the pills and it's just really loud in your face sound and i think that also goes hand in hand with the film editing uh, which, like in those scenes, it's very quick cuts between the lighter and the needle and the eye and the injection itself. But even, like I mentioned, with the speeding up and the slowing down of the scenes where she's on her uppers, or scenes where it's cutting back and forth between the four storylines, it's a really, really well-edited movie. I mean, it's very in-your-face. Um, Aronofsky called it uh, hip-hop editing. <laughs> where, like, a usual movie of this length would have around 600 to 700 cuts. This movie has over 2,000. Mm-hmm. That very specifically cut. There's split-screen moments. There's moments where... Um, there's, there's a couple moments throughout where one of the main characters will uh, have, like, a fantasy sequence where there's one where Leto and Wayans are at a, some outside bar and a cop sits next to them. And the movie goes on for a little bit where Leto grabs the cop's gun and they start throwing it back and forth and then it cuts right back to, no, that didn't happen. It's just in his head. But like the movie doesn't show that to you at first. You think this is what's uh-huh. actually happening. Or later on where Connolly is at dinner with this guy that she's kind of been stringing on to get money for their drugs. And he says something creepy to her. And she fantasizes about grabbing a fork and stabbing it in his hand. But then obviously that doesn't happen. So there's, there's just a... The editing in this movie is so much. And... <laughs> kind of like obviously i get why i get why a movie like this doesn't get other oscar nominations and we'll get into that because it's like so so in your face brutal depressing horrifying but like we've seen in the past that historically the editing branch likes the most editing sometimes more than the best editing for example bohemian rhapsody (laughs) obviously there's that whole thing but like you you could easily see a world where Requiem for a Dream is an editing nominee out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it's it's very and I it's very like loud editing and in your face, as you said, because all these things, all these there's so many stories going on, and with um, a shorter runtime, it 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 really cuts back and forth so much to show you a lot about each thing, but. It doesn't spare any time. Every every scene is impactful, in your face, and loud. And with the dream sequences, like there was one part, and it's a little different, but um, where uh, Harry, his character, um, he looks out the window and he sees Marion at like a a pier. Yeah, he's looking over the ocean, Mm -hmm. and he sees her. And then later on, when things are getting worse for him, we revisit that, and he runs down, and then all of a sudden she's gone. Yep. And then he falls backwards yeah. and 
that's yeah that's at the very end when he's on the bed and his arm is getting amputated and yeah oh boy (laughs) arm that arm is disgusting yeah it's um but one more thing about the editing before i because i have stuff to say about that arm Um, (laughs) another movie with this kind of editing i mean this is a style of editing that gets used a lot another movie might not necessarily it might feel out of place it might feel like just flashy editing for the sake of flashy editing but it's very like it has a purpose in this movie it's because these people are very anxious very hyped up very their emotions and their body functions are being exaggerated by this these drugs and the pills and everything so like we're feeling what they're feeling because the editing is making us uncomfortable on purpose so i it's editing the editing has a purpose beyond just storytelling and beyond just a formal level. Like it's editing to tell the story. Yeah. It's editing. To put, way. Yeah. It puts the audience inside the minds of the character and really makes us feel kind of what they're feeling, what, what anxiety and stressfulness they're feeling really comes out through the editing. And it, it makes the movie a lot more impactful. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, let's talk about that arm. So uh, Jared Leto's character, Harry, eventually is, something happens with his injection and it it fucks up his arm and it's just the most grotesque makeup design on his entire arm. All these like veins and scabs and it it just looks awful. And But it's really well designed. It's a really well made up just wound, I guess. Yeah, at first it looks like, the first time we see it, it's pretty gross. But compared to it later, it's really tame. So it starts us off thinking, oh, that's disgusting. Like, what? what is that? And then we see it later and we're like, oh, my gosh, that was nothing compared to this. Because yeah, he can so barely stand. It, you understand why they had to amputate. Just it's yeah. that, like, essentially, like, most people in the audience probably don't have any experience with the medical field. But the design is such that, like, even the average person sees that and is like, oh, there's no curing that. You have yeah. to cut off the arm. It really sells that well. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the makeup in this, it's subtle. It's very, I mean, it's not subtle because that's not a subtle wound, but like it's not as throughout the movie, especially on Burston. It's very subtle with the way, like they have her in a few different prosthetic necks. Uh, some that are like, they fill out her neck, some that are more emaciated. Mm-hmm and everything with her hair and with the bodysuits. Like, this could also have, again, this movie, you can understand why most Oscar voters, especially in 2000, would not want to go for a movie like this. But the design and the formal elements on a lot of levels are so just, like, well done that you could see this movie ending up with five or six nominations pretty easily if it came out even a few years later. Yeah, I think if it came out like today, it would get so much more oh, award absolutely. buzz because of how it, everything is just done so well. But again, looking back at the time when it came out, you can see why it didn't. Yeah, especially compared to other movies in this year. And we'll get into that in a bit because uh, if voters wanted to uh, attach themselves to a movie that was tackling drugs, they had traffic and traffic. <laughs> while it is still pretty intense, is not nearly as just, like, visceral as mm-hmm. something like Requiem for a Dream. 
but I did want to say, oh, yes, speaking of elements of this movie that are so well done that it's surprising even considering the content that it doesn't get in, let's talk about Clint Mansell's score. Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's one of the, like, I mean, everyone knows the Lux Iternus track. The, <laughs> like, the main one that you think of when you think of this movie. The ba-ba, 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 that one. Which I didn't know the history of that, how that was written. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I don't know. So uh, Clint Mansell and Darren Aronofsky sat down and they listened to a bunch of different requiems, like famous actual requiems, and they mm-hmm. picked out moments throughout from each of them that they liked. And then Clint Mansell put all of that into a drum machine and used that to make the percussion. And then <laughs> they had the string quartet uh, write the string portion to it. But all of like the percussive beats in the song are uh, like synthesized from actual requiems. Oh my, that's that's crazy. I I wouldn't yeah, have expected it that. Like, it's it's insane that Clint Mansell still doesn't have an Oscar nomination. Yeah, considering how many scores he's written that are so good, and how much just like I don't know, it's going to happen someday, and it's going <laughs> to be for something not nearly as good as what he's done so far. But like, oh, this is it's it's a fantastic score, and it's iconic. It's quite literally an iconic score to the point that even two years later, they use it in one of the trailers for the Lord of the Rings, the two towers. <laughs> and it's, it gets used in a lot of trailers like sunshine mm-hmm. um, and a bunch of other stuff, but just that like, it's become that it's one of the more iconic individual tracks from a score of the past 25 years. And again, in another year that w- like in a more sort of progressive Oscar voting body, a more uh, open to sort of darker movies, that score is a no-brainer. Yep, I agree. I think that that main track obviously is amazing, but everything else that comes with it is equally as good. Oh yeah, no, it, it sounds great throughout, even in the earlier moments when there's not, when it's not that track. The other stuff sort that sort of gets overshadowed culturally, it's still a really great score. Yeah, I think. Uh, a part of it that really stands out to me is like in the early scenes with Harry and Marion where they're just like in love and they're spending quality time together. Like the one where they're laying with their heads next to each other. It sounds eerie in the background and it makes this scene that should be happy. These two people are in love. They're enjoying their life. It makes it feel like you're, you're as an audience, you're worried about them. You can feel from the score that something's going to go bad. This isn't going to last. It really builds the tension. Uh, Like, I think the score and the sound design and the editing all go hand in hand towards building the uh, the tension that is built up in the first half of this movie. That, like, if any one of those three is lacking in any way, the whole movie doesn't work. And it really, you need all three of those very specifically to work with this movie. And they all do. Mm-hmm. They all really come together in a great way uh, to sell this movie as being as intense as it is from the very beginning. Yeah, it's it's any piece that like if if any piece of this movie is missing, then it doesn't feel right. Because yeah. any scene that I think about, there's 20 different things that make it what it is and make it as devastating and heartbreaking and memorable as it is. Yeah, and. Uh, so for the first four episodes I've done for this podcast, none of them have been particularly directory movies. Like, 
movies where I talk about the director as particularly uh, as something to talk about. This mm-hmm. movie is so, so very well directed. And Darren Aronofsky is, I mean, he's kind of like lumped in with those asshole auteurs of this era, but he, he can command a screen with even the smallest of moments. And I, th- I think he does a really great job here for his second yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's insane. Just to think about that and every movie that he's made after that, I'd, I'd say Requiem for a Dream is still his biggest accomplishment um, yeah. and just looking back on it, it's like, crazy. Black Swan is great. I watched it again yesterday and mm-hmm. The Wrestler is fantastic. Mother, as weird as that is, is a really, really fascinating project that I think works more often than it doesn't. Yeah, like Pi is a really great debut too, and I haven't seen The Fountain, and I have no interest in seeing Noah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, he has a really pretty solid track record, Mm -hmm. and the fact that Requiem for a Dream is near, if not the top of that, is really something to say. Yeah, I think Mother Mother's one of those movies where you you watch it, and in like Requiem for a Dream, you can't stop thinking about it every little aspect of it is so finely tuned. And even if it's not your favorite thing, you got to admit there's a lot of effort put into it from Aronofsky. Yeah. Love it or hate it. Mother is a movie that I'm, I, it's important mm -hmm. to the scale, to the scope of film. Even if you despise that movie, that's a movie that more or less works on a universal scale. Even if, (laughs) that work working means that you absolutely despise it. It yeah, still it's, works. It it's still one works. of the most unique experiences I've ever had watching a movie. And I don't think any movie has ever come close to yeah. like um, amazing me and making me feel like an idiot for watching it. Cause it's like, it's so above everything in terms of its scale and what it's trying to do and what it's trying to make you feel. And it's just, it's crazy. It's yeah, like almost on the level of Requiem for a Dream in that kind of sense. Yeah, he is a director that will get under your skin. <laughs> like even in, so of the ones I've seen, The Wrestler is far and away the most uh, grounded in reality. Like there's not really a psychological bent to that. But even that movie will make you just feel uncomfortable. And I would like, of the others I've seen, of Pi, Requiem, Black Swan, and Mother, those are all horror movies, essentially. Those are like, <laughs> a, a, like Mother is pretty clearly a horror movie. Black Swan is pretty clearly a horror movie. But mm-hmm. Requiem for a Dream, I, I would comfortably call that a horror movie. Oh, I would agree. I would totally agree. It is, it is 100% a horror movie. Yeah. You know who's great in this movie? It's Christopher McDonald as the, the mm-hmm. teenager. Yep. Which apparently... He filmed his, like, everything that he does in this movie in one day. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, he was on set for one day, and he improved a lot of his lines. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, I mean, this is a great year for supporting actor. Like, my personal ballot would probably be 15, 20 names deep. But he's really good in this. He's, like, it's, it's a performance that you would see, like, gig young and they shoot horses, don't they? or even Patrick Swayze in Donnie Darko. It's a very specific archetype that I think is so fascinating of like using the presenter host charismatic type as just insidiousness, just absolute sick, vile personality 
um, but so compelling. Yeah. Like thinking back to all those scenes and just hearing that in your head that we got a winner, we got a winner or a number one, like talking about like red meat, things you have to kick. Yeah. And you hear that throughout the movie in Sarah's thoughts and everything and throughout what she's doing and him just saying those lines over and over and over. It is just, it's pounding and it, it really gets under your skin. Yeah. This movie has a lot of repetition throughout uh, mm-hmm. with like the same uh, shtick that he does on TV over and over and the repetition of the drug uh, sort of montages. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that really also ties in with the whole cycle of abuse. And uh, there's a, a line that I was, that I saw where, Aronofsky asked uh, Selby, the author of the book, uh, if Harry lives at the end of the book, uh, because he wanted to essentially depict accurately uh, the ending to the story. And Selby said, of course he lives. He has, he has to suffer more. Um, and so like, even though the movie's over, and even though he's missing an arm, there's still that cycle of abuse and of addiction that like, it's all going to repeat. It's yeah. all... We see that with all four characters, like Marion um, at the end has got more drugs and we can see that that's going to keep happening for her. Marlon Wayne's character, he's in prison now. I think. Yes. Yes. He, he's in prison now. Um, and obviously Sarah, that's not going to go well for him and it doesn't. Uh, and, yep. and Sarah is still hallucinating. She's still mm-hmm. seeing visions of being on TV. Yeah. They're all, they're all not done suffering. Mm-hmm. And which, I mean, we see literally, uh, or figuratively at least, they all end up in the fetal position. They're essentially reborn, but reborn to suffer more. Mm-hmm. And go through the same cycle all over again. And just because they've hit rock bottom doesn't mean there isn't further to go. Yeah, I think that last final, where, where all four of them curl up into the fetal position, it really shows that even though the movie's ending, this is a new start for them as peop- as this is going to keep going um it's it's never we see it as it's never going to stop until their lives are over it's the same ending as mother i just realized that because mother starts mm-hmm. with jennifer lawrence waking up in bed and saying baby calling out for javier bardem and then the whole movie happens and she spoiler for mother gets her heart ripped out in the basement and god kills the earth and starts all over again and he has a new muse and she wakes up in bed and says, baby. The, both movies literally end with everything being resolved into baby, more or less, and mm-hmm. reborn to suffer more. Fuck. <laughs> I just realized that. Oh, boy. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, that, the mother ending. It really, again, just like Requiem for a Dream, it's a cycle. It's going to repeat. Yeah. It's a circle. It's going to keep going forever. And this suffering isn't going to end. Let's talk about the other actors. We haven't really, like we've mentioned them in passing, but we haven't really talked about their performances. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have a particular favorite of the other three out of uh, Leto, Connolly, and Wayans? Um, I don't know if I have a particular favorite. Um, I think Jennifer Connolly, her performance, it does stick with me and kind of what her character goes through, especially towards the end, really, I think really in your face highlights what is so bad about what they're doing. Yeah, that like, it's not that he doesn't love her, but mm-hmm. that even though they have this connection, her and Jared Leto, she's still pushed to suffer horrendously. And like, 
whore herself out, literally, because of what he's done and what he's done to them. And just that love doesn't conquer all, essentially, in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I don't really have an ending to that thought. Each of the stories individually is just piles of heartbreak. And I think seeing her at the end, you kind of realize that what we saw in the last 30 minutes is going to keep going. And that's such a horrifying thought because you never want, like, obviously you never want yourself to have to go through that, but you don't even want to see other people go through that at all in life in any way, but to see that that's going to keep happening for her. It's horrifying. We should probably say what happens to her. I know we're kind of dancing around it. Yeah. (laughs) So they run out of money and uh, Harry and Tyrone go down to Florida to get some more money and they get picked up by the cops along the way. But she also needs money back in New York and she has a number for a guy that will get her uh, money in exchange for sex. And she goes to him and she does that. And then he takes her to a, a sex club and uh, has her basically degrade herself and perform in front of a bunch of like old, gross, rich guys that pay her to just be like a very voyeuristic, creepy thing. Uh, and do you want to say the famous line? Um, which line? There's a lot about that scene that sticks. You know the you know the one where uh, she asks this one guy what he wants her to do, and he just goes. like a double-sided dildo and they put one end in her and one end in this other girl and that's what's being intercut between Leto's arm getting cut off and Sarah getting the electroshock and Mm. uh, Tyrone getting just bullied by these prison guards Um, apparently that line was improvised (laughs) that's not in the script the ass to ass line is not in the script and that actor just I mean it's what's gonna happen I should just Say it like that. So that was a... That whole scene where and then they start chanting around her. And even yeah. as it's cutting back through the other characters, it, we still hear the chanting. Yeah. They're all chanting ass to ass, ass mm. to ass. Yeah. It's intense. It is very intense. We're just going to keep saying intense and brutal and heartbreaking this whole episode. <laughs> That's it, really... It's yeah. Just nonstop. There's, there's a, just a certain a certain feeling that it evokes and there aren't a lot of words. I feel like that can truly describe it. It's, it's a unique experience. Absolutely. To watch this movie. Yeah. I think Connelly's really great in this. And this is at a very interesting time in her career. So she had, I, the first thing that I can think of at least that she's in is uh, she has a sort of small role in once upon a time in America as a teenager. She's like the dancer girl that baby De Niro is sort of infatuated with. And then she's in, I can't remember the move, the title, but the next year she's in a horror movie that I think is Dario Argento. And it has a couple titles. I don't remember what it's called though. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's got like this sort of metal apparatus on her head and that I haven't seen it. So I, I only really know of it tangentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's in Labyrinth the next year and she's sort of a indie teen star of the 80s, 90s. And she's in Dark City. And then this year, she's in Requiem for a Dream, and then she's at the very end of Pollock as the uh, Pollock's new young girlfriend that's in the car when he crashes and kills them all. And then the next year, she's in A Beautiful Mind, and she wins the Oscar. And I mm-hmm. think that really, I don't necessarily know if she wins that 
if she doesn't have Requiem for a Dream the year before, where she's so critically yeah. loved and doesn't get the nomination and has that sort of momentum carrying her towards that. Because she's never been nominated outside of that uh, nomination, and she won on that. And she's, she's fine in that. It's not a bad win. <laughs> but, like, yeah. yeah. That, like, that movie doesn't really stick with you. I watched it this week, and it's not nearly as impressive as what she's doing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I haven't seen A Beautiful Mind, but I, I, I can't imagine what, like, why she didn't get something for this. Like, I, I understand why, but yeah. looking back to it, you watch Requiem for Your Dream and you, it, it really sticks with you what she does and she deserves any award that she should have been given. Yeah. Jared Leto is, he's not great in this. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't necessarily like him all that much as an actor anyway most of the time but yeah in this he's doing a very weird accent i don't think it i don't i think the accent really puts me off from his character right from the get-go it's very strong yeah yeah no i i think that kind of puts me at uh at an arm's length from his character where with the others you get very personally invested in their arcs but with him it's just sort of i don't know i don't really believe him in this role yeah yeah, I think a lot of what that is for me is that the other characters and the other performances just stand out a lot more. Yeah. And it, it makes me sympathize and feel more about their stories when compared to his. And even though his is devastating, getting his arm cut off. He gets his arm cut off. Yeah. Like that doesn't grow back. That's gone. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's, he's an amputee for the rest of his life. But like you said, yeah, you, you don't really feel all that much for him. Like... When it gets to the end, when they all do their fetal position, sort of closing thoughts essentially on their characters, they get a sort of fantasy of some sort, and then they roll over onto their side and assume the position. And his, like, I'm so not as invested in his character to the point that I didn't really realize that that was already happening with him because his happens first, and then it cuts to Connolly. And when Connolly does hers and she rolls over, I was like, okay, this is the first one, and then it's going to go Wayans and then Burston and then Leto. I, totally didn't even notice that it had already happened for him. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it, it feels almost separate from the other three at the end. Yeah. I mean, Ellen Burstyn's also in a hospital, but like the other two are, I know, and because Mar- Marlon Wayans is also in prison. So Jennifer Connelly is the only one that's at home, but even yeah. then it's like, yeah, no, he's at a very, I realized probably saying at arm's length was uh, <laughs> not the most, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't mean that when I said it. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's very removed from, ah, removed too. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, it feels very, uh, I can't think of another thing to say that doesn't sound like I'm making fun of him for not about getting his arm cut off. Yeah. Jesus. I think him being with, um, Tyrone, the whole movie, it kind of helps because we feel this when I was watching, I felt this camaraderie between the characters and him having a, that relationship with his mom that we really do get to see a lot of because her character is so big. I think that does help out with the character seeing how he interacts with the other three. I feel like anything that I like with him in this movie is because of how he interacts with those other three. I don't really get a lot from him specifically because you don't really get all that many scenes of him where he's not involved in some way with one of the other three Mm -hmm. 
So when you do get him alone, it's kind of like there's nothing there. Because all the other characters individually have something else. Like, obviously, um, Sarah has a ton of other stuff going on, but even Tyrone has stuff that he's involved with. Um, his girlfriend. And, and his girlfriend. Stuff with his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which on that, I think I, it was either Aronofsky or Selby said that Tyrone is the only character that has any hope in his future because his like fantasy flashback in that ending scene is of him and his mother. So, like he has something to strive for. Mm-hmm. Whereas Connolly is just going to be whoring herself out more and Burston has, you know, fully lost it. And Leto has lost an arm and is going to jail probably mm-hmm. once he gets released. Yeah. But like now Tyrone has hope in his future. Yeah. I think, that last bit where we see him and behind his bed is his thoughts of his him him being a kid with his mom and earlier we had seen when he was finally doing well when they were making a lot of money there was a flashback to him coming up to his mom and he said see mom something like i i told you i'd make it yeah and knowing that the end that that all went away he lost all that but he still is holding on to that thought of his mother, I that does kind of bring in some hope to his the end of his story. Yeah, and Marlon Wayans is also really good in this. Like mm-hmm. we haven't touched on his performance all that much, but he does a really good job. And it's it's you worry that it could be a stereotypical role because of the content uh, and the drug dealing aspect of it. But I think he he really sells it and he really makes it unique. And he's scared a lot. Like he's in over his head so much in this movie, especially with the like the warring drug. Uh, dealers with the is it Italians that are trying to like yeah yeah it, the get Italian. rid of the uh, the current drug dealers mm-hmm. he isn't operating on like any sort of scheming in charge level he's just happens into it and is so not prepared for everything that goes on around it yeah this, I think the scene where we see him he's in the car and the guy's telling him he's going to be promoted because he's been doing so well, but immediately right after that, he gets shot right in front of him. Yeah, and, we see him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. It, and then Tyrone gets out, but then he gets caught. Mm-hmm. Does he get caught by the cops? I can't remember. actually. Yeah. He gets caught by the cops and then they, um, they release yeah, him on bail. Yeah. He gets out on bail from Connolly, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She gets the money from, that's why she has to go to dinner with that guy again. Yeah. I think and she gets the money and then, Something like that. I don't know. But yeah, he, him running away from that car and we see the blood on his face and he's practically crying, running away. It, it, it really shows a lot that I think, some, that I think something like that could have added a lot to Jared Leto's character, but we don't really get that. Yeah, yeah, we really don't. Oh, and a few other things that like are behind the scenes trivia. Uh, <laughs> for example, uh, Aronofsky uh, made Jared Leto and Marlon Wayans not have sex or eat sugar for 30 days so that they could understand like the drug cravings and the Uh withdrawals. So I guess you see a lot of that in their performances, like Mm -hmm. in the scenes where they're unable, like they don't have anything. And so they are sort of uh, suffering through that. Yeah. And then I thought this was absolutely fascinating. So Aronofsky loved this book. He had read it before he was, making any films and then when he got uh, essentially free reign to make anything he wanted after pie because pie was such a big indie hit 
he, he this was the pro, the project he wanted to do but he wanted to keep it mostly faithful to the book but he talked with selby about how he thought that it would be better if the three main characters uh if harry and marion and tyrone were all teenagers like 14 to 16 and <laughs> just really sell even more about how just brutal these conditions were and selby agreed he was like oh yeah no, that that actually does make the story all that more harrowing. But the studio said no, because of, like, with yeah. all the, the drug and sex content and the violence, like, no audience would go out to see this movie. Like, even though it, it was, as it is, it was NC-17, and it, it was a hit, but, it, like, as far as an independent NC-17 movie about drugs, can yeah. if this movie was about teenagers doing all this, it would be so much, like... I don't even think Burston would have gotten the nomination, even though <laughs> so removed from that storyline. I don't. I don't think anyone would be wanting yep. to touch on that type of movie. Yeah, it, it would. It would be completely different. I didn't know that. That's yeah. That I didn't really realize that either. But like, it makes sense. Like, I'm trying to think who it would have been in that era that would have been around that age. Not Haley. Like Haley Joel Osment would have been a bit too young. But like, <laughs> imagine this movie with Haley Joel Osment instead of Jared Leto. Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know who, at least according to Wikipedia and IMDb and all that, the uh, the other actors that they either wanted or wanted to be in the main roles? Um, I didn't hear any about this. So uh, they wanted Giovanni Ribisi for Harry, uh-huh. but he turned it down. They wanted Nev Campbell for Marion, but she turned it down because of the nudity. Uh-huh. Uh, they wanted Dave Chappelle for Tyrone, but he turned it down. And then uh, they wanted... Uh, Faye Dunaway for Sarah, really? which would have been really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I think also Anne Bancroft, but she, uh, I don't think she had retired by then, but she turned it down as well. But yeah, just imagine this movie with uh, Giovanni Ribisi, Nev Campbell, Dave Chappelle, and Faye Dunaway. Completely different movie. Yeah, it would have been very different. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I have all that much else as far as talking about the actual form of the movie. So do you want, uh, do you have anything else or are you ready to I'm, move on and I'm, talk about the Oscars? Yeah, totally. I'm ready to move on. Let's go. So the nominees for best performance by an actress in a leading role are Joan Allen in The Contender, Juliette Binoche in Chocolat, Ellen Burstyn in Requiem for a Dream, Laura Linney in You Can Count On Me. Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich. So, let's talk about the awards run of Requiem for a Dream. So, right off the bat, uh, there's not much to say about this, but uh, Ellen Burstyn got a SAG nomination for lead actress, and it was the same uh, five nominees at the Oscars, so not much to say about that. Uh, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating really great uh best actress lineup uh, mm-hmm. have you have you seen all of the other nominees or i um, have yes okay. i've seen okay. we'll talk about that in a bit i really want to d- dive deep into this category because it's mm. it's four great performances and juliette Binoche, <laughs> and she's fine in chocolate but there's really not a whole lot there i think mm-hmm. uh the golden globes also nominated ellen burston for lead actress in a drama and Instead of Juliette Binoche, they had an even more harrowing movie and performance than Ellen Preston in this, which is Bjork for Dancer in the Dark, <laughs> which 
I mean, Bjork should have gotten that Oscar nomination. She's maybe my winner this year, even mm-hmm. though Burstyn is great. I think Bjork is really, really on a complete other level from any other actors I've seen do most anything else in general. I think that's a great performance. And probably didn't get in because there was also Requiem for a Dream. Like, yeah. I imagine both of those performances canceled each other out. And that's why Burstyn gets in, but not Bjork. I have a game for you, actually. All right. You want to play a game? Okay. So Requiem for a Dream made the AFI Top 10 Films of the Year list. And uh, with the top 10, each of the movies got a little blurb on their website about why it made the top 10. So I have those blurbs for you, uh, not in any order. I've taken out all titles, director, actor names, put those in as blanks. So I'm going to give them to you each a sentence at a time and see if you can guess what movies they are from that. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so here's the first movie on this list. Director takes no prisoners in his harrowing second film title. Sounds like Requiem for a Dream. It is Requiem for a Dream. The rest of the blurb is that utilizing the language of cinema to startling film effect, he condenses information through multiple points of view and propulsive editing. Ellen Burstyn and Jared Leto give electrifying performances as a drug-addicted mother and son. So, yeah. And the second movie on this list, with title, director, blank, and the ensemble cast elevate, elevate the mock documentary form to new artistic heights. Mark documentary form. I'm not sure what this is. Okay. Uh, the film raises comedy to the level of insight and weaves the seamless narrative fabric from actors' improvisation around a central theme. I feel like I should know this. So it's, most, it's a mostly improv movie. Yes, and it's a mock documentary from 2000. I'm not sure. I'll give you the actor's name on this last sentence. Fred Willard's performance is worthy of special recognition. Oh, that rings a bell. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not getting it. Uh, it's uh, Best in Show. Best, Best in Show. In show. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Pretty absent from the awards race otherwise, but like, that, was, that, that got a lot of critical love. That would have mm-hmm. been... That's a great movie. I need to watch that again. It's been a while. Okay, here's your next uh, blurb. Director invigorates the biographical movie in his sensual, lyrical, and searing memorial to the late Cuban novelist and poet character name, played by actor name, with a riveting mixture of passion and playfulness. Hmm. So, what was that about Cuba? (laughs) Uh, Memorial to the late Cuban novelist and poet character name. Huh. I'm not sure yet. Title is a moving testament to artistic and sexual freedom, and director brings it to a painter's eye and a documentarian's attention to detail or to cultural detail. I'm still not sure. Uh, those are the only sentences you get. <laughs> the only sentences the first you one get. Long. This, is, this is an Oscar nominee in. A in an acting category. It's a movie I get to talk about eventually. <laughs> um, I'm not getting it. That is Before Night Falls, Before nominated Night. for Javier Bardem. Okay. okay, most of the others are pretty easy. Uh, okay, <laughs> for one, there's one that is fully 
says nothing about the actual movie. <laughs> the last. Okay. Director balances a complex narrative structure that includes three separate stories and multiple outstanding performances. Three separate stories. I'm trying to go in my head through what I've uh, through the 2000 movies. Yeah. Um, now I haven't seen Traffic, um, but I'm willing to guess Traffic. You are correct. It is Traffic. Okay. <laughs> uh, traffic moves with clarity, grace, and intelligence through a broad strata of American and Mexican society in this uncompromising tale about the never-ending fight to win a war against drugs. Yeah, Traffic. It's good. It's a it's a solid movie. I definitely. Well. I mean, there's definitely some parts to it. Like, the war on drugs is a lot more complicated of a topic than mm-hmm. that movie sort of sells it out to be. But it's a it's a solid movie. Okay. This sophisticated, beautifully written comedy of manners is a melancholy and funny coming of middle age story. Middle age story. Was this like uh, an Oscar nominee? It was. It's an Oscar winner. It's an Oscar winner. Okay. Um, I'm not sure yet. In title, director displays a a sure comic satiric touch and draws remarkable performances from his ensemble, particularly actor as a literary one-hit wonder and actor as his precocious student. Oh, I feel like I should have this. It's Um, a movie that doesn't get talked about as much these days. I just watched it uh, in preparation for this. Uh, it's it's really good. What is it? It's Wonder Boys. Curtis Hanson's Wonder. Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas, uh, Tobey Maguire, Francis McDormand, Robert mm-hmm. Downey Jr. It's really good. It sounds interesting. It is. It's, it's uh, pretty compelling. Okay, next, uh, number six out of ten. Uh, title is an offbeat odyssey about a 30-something record store owner who knows everything about pop music but nothing about life. Everything about pop music, but I think that's good. Um, I'm not sure. I feel like if I didn't get it from that, then... yeah, maybe not. A terrific ensemble cast includes music as a central character. The film effortlessly breaks the fourth wall, and rather than shoehorning its quirky characters into a tidy resolution, chooses a real world ending. Hmm. It sounds really interesting and maybe like something I would like, but I haven't it's a while seen it. since I've seen it, but I remember liking it. That's High Fidelity. High Fidelity. With right. John Cusack, Jack Black. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's a, it's a good uh, semi-realistic romantic drama. Yeah. <laughs> good. Okay. Uh, this is a weird first sentence, but I think you'll get, you'll get it from the next one. At the center of title lies a question. When it would be easier not to, do you write the truth? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure yet. Okay, this will give it to you. Director writes the truth in this story of a young rock journalist in the 1970s with a profound understanding that can come only from living it as he directs with an uncommon attention of, to detail of time, place, and character, capturing how deeply music affects us. Uh, it's about... Uh, a see, rock I've... journalist in the 70s. I haven't seen Dancer in the Dark. No, it's not that. This okay. is an Oscar winner. Oscar winner. Um, in a major category. That sounds so familiar. Yeah. Um, 
it's a that's a really weird write-up of this movie because I I never think about it as being about like writing the truth or not. Although I guess that's <laughs> technically a big part of it. Mm-hmm. That's almost famous. Almost famous. Oh my gosh! I I should have gotten that one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> these are really weird descriptions of these movies, which is why I thought it made for a fun game. Okay, here's here's another interesting one. Mm-hmm. Title updates the traditional American genre, the epic costume film, through cutting edge technology. Is that Gladiator? That is Gladiator. Okay. Gladiator. Next, uh, the rest of that. Its hero, a noble and unselfish man, is the type movies have celebrated for generations. But the modern methods used to, to create the world he lives in give viewers a new kind of spectacle for the new millennium. Again, yeah. weird way to describe Gladiator. But Very interesting. <laughs> two more. In title, writer-director director surprises time and again with his affecting story of a complicated, funny, and emotional sister-brother relationship. Is this the one with Laura Linney? It is the one. You can count on me. I got the name. You can right. count on me. Laura yes, uh, <laughs> Lenny and Mark Ruffalo create heartbreakingly real characters in this under, underexplored thematic territory. Mm-hmm. Tongue twister there at the end. <laughs> this is the last one, and it fully says nothing about the actual content of the movie, so I will be impressed but surprised if you get it. <laughs> this finely crafted studio picture goes beyond the familiar with humor, texture, and a fine attention to detail an increasingly rare experience. Yeah, that doesn't really that doesn't really say a lot. And here's the other half. Title, with its luminescent performance by actress, accomplishes what all Hollywood films should aspire to, to excel both as art and as entertainment. That's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Dancer in the Dark? No, that's Aaron Brockovich. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dancer in the Dark... Uh, is not uh, necessarily humorous or... Uh, yeah, I didn't think so, but I wasn't exactly sure what that was. <laughs> yeah, apparently, it's Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, so uh, think... Requiem for a Dream made that top 10. That's uh, how many Best Picture nominees in there? Is it only two? Three. Yeah, uh, Brockovich, Gladiator, and Traffic. So no Chocolat, which I guess was American, so it, it would have counted. And then Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but AFI, American Film Institute, they don't yeah. put uh, non-American movies on their lists. So this didn't get any BAFTA nominations, also going down the major precursors. precursors excuse me. It's a, it's a weird actress uh, list that they pulled from, even though they're all Oscar-adjacent. It's uh, Julia Roberts for Aaron Brockovich, Juliette Binoche for Chocolat, Hilary Swank for Boys Don't Cry, because this was still in the era where BAFTA would sometimes get movies a year late. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate Hudson for Almost Famous, even though she was going supporting that whole season. And Michelle Yeoh for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which would have been a really, really cool Oscar nomination. Yeah. And yes, it, it didn't happen for her, but she, she would have been very worthy. What else is on here? I mean, there's a, I, I wrote down a whole lot of uh, <laughs> awards precursors mm-hmm. that this got um but i, I just want to see where i go next uh from here uh national society of film critics burston came third after laura linney for you can count on me and jillian anderson for the house of mirth 
hmm. uh, which they just covered on this head Oscar buzz. It's a good episode. Go check that uh-huh. out. Uh, to listen to that, but Burstyn came third there. Oh, you know who loved Requiem for a Dream is the Indie Spirits. The Indie oh, Spirits really? Gave it a whole bunch of nominations. Mm-hmm. It got a Best Picture nomination, which it lost to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Also nominated alongside Before Night Falls, uh, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Oh, the... Yeah, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, <laughs> the movie. And George Washington uh, by... Oh, why am I blanking on his name? He just did the... Uh, David Gordon Green. Mm-hmm. George Washington, which is actually really good. Best Director, Aronofsky got a nomination, also lost to Ang Lee for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, along with Miguel Arteta for Chuck and Buck, Christopher Guest for Best in Show, and Julian Schnabel for Before Night Falls. Uh, Ellen Burstyn won their Best Actress prize, uh, nominated against Joan Allen for The Contender and Laura Linney. So that's a three for five Oscar lineup at uh, The Spirits, which doesn't always happen especially in their acting categories. But also nominated were Sonalathon for Love and Basketball and Kelly McDonald for a movie called Two Family House, which I have never heard of outside of this. <laughs> I, mean, I don't I think I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Connelly also got a nomination here, which is, I think, the closest she got to any like major precursor. She got some critical stuff, but she loses out to Zhang Ziyi for Crouching Tiger. Also nominated Marsha Gay Harden, the eventual Oscar winner for uh, Pollock, and then uh, Pat Carroll for Soul Catcher. Is that what I wrote down? I can't, I can't read my own handwriting. It looks like I wrote Saug Catcher, <laughs> right? I'm going to guess it's Soul Catcher, and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. And then uh, Lupe Ontiveros for Chuck and Buck. Mm-hmm. And then it also got a cinematography nomin or no, it won Best Cinematography at the Indie Spirit. Oh, really? Well deserved. Uh, also beating out Before Night Falls, George Washington, Hamlet, the Ethan Hawke Hamlet, mm-hmm. and Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, no Crouching Tiger in the yeah, cinematography? I guess not. That's kind of surprising because that ended up winning the Oscar. Mm-hmm. I mean, it won their Best Picture Prize. So it was yeah, <laughs> that's why I was wondering. <laughs> spirit eligible. Yeah, the cinematography we didn't talk about when we were talking about the rest of the movie, but it's a really well-shot movie. Yeah, it's really interesting how they choose certain angles and stuff throughout the movie. Yeah, like I mentioned in that scene where Ellen Burstyn's at the doctor and everything is slow and it's like a fisheye lens, but but it like twists her face into like almost a bean shape. Yeah. It's definitely not like attractive cinematography in the way they like to go for but it's it's very effective in yeah it's sort of you know, sort of like the yeah sort of like the sound design how it doesn't sound good but it's effective yeah. for the movie and it's done really well yeah absolutely uh it also got onto the national board of review their special recognition for excellence in filmmaking list which was essentially their top 10 independent films before mm-hmm. they did the top 10 independent films list also nominated alongside, or not nominated, but it got listed alongside American Psycho, Best in Show, Chuck and Buck, Girl Fight, Hamlet, Nurse Betty, Shower, Snatch, and again, Two Family House. Uh, so that's a, that's a pretty solid list. Like a lot of those movies still hold up and still get sort of talked about as far as the best movies of this year. Yeah, you hear a lot about uh, American Psycho and Crouching Tiger, stuff like that. Yeah, Best in Show, Snatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it got a Golden Satellite Award, uh, which is another independent awards uh, body. Ellen Burstyn won there, nominated alongside 
Joan Allen, Laura Linney, and, and uh, Julia Roberts, all also Oscar nominated, and then Bjork again, and Gillian Anderson again. So it was like, it was a pretty, I mean, it's a deep field. There's a lot of yeah. actress performances this year, but like, it was a pretty uh, solid consensus about who the names near the top were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also Juliette Binoche, <laughs> Miramax. Um, okay, I want to talk about my absolute favorite, just like awful, not even awful, but just the most astounding awards presence I could find for Re- Requiem for a Dream this year, uh-huh. which is the Saturn Awards, the uh, Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. So it got two nominations at the Saturn Awards. Uh, Ellen Burstyn was nominated for Best Actress in a Science Fiction, Fantasy, or Horror Film, alongside Kate Blanchett for The Gift, Jennifer Lopez for The Cell, Michelle Pfeiffer for What Lies Beneath, and Michelle Yeoh for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and they all lost to Taya Leone for The Family Man, the Nicolas Cage movie The Family Man. But that's not what the weirdest, absolute, just most buckwild awards presence is, because the best horror film lineup at Mm -hmm. the Saturn Awards, nominated alongside Dracula 2000, (laughs) The Gift, Urban Legends Final Cut, and What Lies Beneath. Do you want to guess what movie that I didn't mention beat Requiem for a Dream for their best horror film? Their best horror film? Not Um, American Psycho, I'll tell you that. Not Shadow of the Vampire, which won uh, Willem Dafoe, their supporting actor prize, mm -hmm. and didn't get nominated. Do you want to know what won best horror film in 2000? Yeah, what was it? Final Destination. Final Destination beat Requiem for a Dream for essentially a Best Picture prize. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Isn't that just hilarious? (laughs) Oh, I would have never guessed that. That's that's insane. Uh, We love you, Saturn Awards. (laughs) Oh boy. New York Film, I'm just looking more. There's so much more to talk about as far as awards. Like I have another Mm -hmm. whole page of stuff. Uh, New York Film Critics Burston is a nominee for Best Supporting Actress, interestingly. Oh. Uh, uh, Marsha Gay Harden ends up winning again for Pollock, and Frances McDormand for Almost Famous is also nominated. Because originally the studios wanted to uh, campaign her in supporting because they felt that she would have won easily, and she would have. Like, yeah. <laughs> this was a year where Supporting Actress was so in flux that Marsha Gay Harden doesn't get nominated at the Globes, SAG, or BAFTA, and then ends up winning the Oscar. And if Ellen Burstyn was in that lineup, like she would have swept. But yeah. she was like, no, I'm a lead in this movie. I want to be campaign lead. And she's right. She is yep. like co-lead with Leto. Uh, and it got her the nomination anyway, but she didn't win because Julia... I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about this category, but Julia Roberts' whole narrative is in hindsight, pretty undeniable that she was always going to win. Boston Society of Film Critics, Ellen Burstyn wins over Laura Linney and Julia Roberts. Uh, Matthew Libatique comes in fourth place for cinematography. Crouching Tiger wins there. Uh, His prize is shared with uh, Tigerland, which he also shot that year. Chicago Film Critics, Ellen Burstyn wins. Aronofsky loses to Soderbergh for Traffic for Best Director. Oh, this is kind of interesting. Uh, the Hair and Makeup Guild uh, nominated this 
for their uh, best innovative hairstyling award, which is like essentially like not they do period hairstyling, uh, contemporary and innovative. So like special effects mm-hmm. uh, for hairstyling. The Grinch wins, also nominated against the Cell, and then but then their special makeup effects award is also the Grinch, is also the Cell, and then a replacing Requiem for a Dream for their makeup uh, effects award is nominee Nutty Professor Two, the Clumps. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what else? Las Vegas critics burst and wins, and Connolly gets a nomination at the Motion Pictures. Sound Editors Awards. It's a nominee for Sound Editing Foreign Feature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not. For, do you want to know what won their uh, their domestic feature uh, Sound Editing Award? Uh-huh. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a domestic feature. That's very decidedly not an American picture. I don't <laughs> understand what happened there. Um, that is strange. Uh, online film critics wins for Ellen Burstyn, Aronofsky, score, editing, number two on their top 10 films of the year, nominated for Best Picture, Jennifer Connelly Cinematography Ensemble. Phoenix critics, Ellen Burstyn, and the editing win, nominated again for Picture, Connelly, Director, Screenplay, Cinematography. So, like, this was a big critical movie. You yeah. can understand, like, with the awards, this movie was getting a lot of nominations and wins and runner-ups in a lot of these categories, which is understandable because this is definitely the kind of movie that the critics would champion, but more industry players would not really be into. Yeah. Yeah, no, like we, I mean, we, we touched on this earlier when we were talking about how all of those elements uh, to the, the craft, like the sound and the editing and the score and the cinematography and the direction are all like, things that realistically probably should have been uh, more considered, but like it makes complete sense that they weren't. Yeah. I don't, I feel like I've just sort of been reading off all this stuff. Do you have, I mean, do you have stuff to say? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it's, it's run is interesting and seeing all of the, the, you know, stuff that doesn't get talked about as much, the, the smaller awards and, um, not as big precursors, all that stuff that it's garnering acclaim for. And then you see, that contrasted with one Oscar nomination, one Golden Globe, no BAFTAs, one SAG. It's it's a big difference. And looking back on it, we can see that, yeah, Requiem for a Dream should have gotten a lot more. And yeah. it's it's kind of sad because like if it had come out a few years later, maybe it would have, and maybe that would have given it a little bit more force going forward and having more people see that movie. Yeah, and like... I think it's not a coincidence that once uh, the Oscars opened up their best picture field to a, a lineup of 10 instead of a, uh, instead of a lineup of five, mm-hmm. that Black Swan does as well as it does. Yeah. Uh, uh, gets a director nomination for Aronofsky. Natalie Portman wins. I think it gets an editing nomination. Yeah, it gets a cinematography nomination for Matthew Libatique. And it gets mm-hmm. the film editing nomination. So, like, Black Swan is kind of the culmination of his career to that point. Requiem for a Dream gets the critical love. Uh, the Wrestler gets nominations for uh, Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei. Uh, misses out on the picture nomination and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they open up Best Picture to 10. And 
Aronofsky's next movie gets him picture, director, acting win. And probably came close to Ian Moore. Like, that that misses out on a screenplay and a score nomination. Again, for Clint Mansell, who can't get an Oscar nomination to save his life for all of this fantastic music he's writing. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder, is he writing the music for Aronofsky's next movie? I imagine so, for uh, The Whale, which is, I think it got pushed next year. So that's not going to be a player this year. Um... Who's doing the music on that? It doesn't say. It doesn't have a uh, composer attached, but I imagine Aronofsky is probably going to uh, go back to Mansell for that. So mm-hmm. maybe he'll be nominated not this year, but next year for. We can hope. <laughs> yeah, we can hope. We can hope indeed. Uh, also, Brendan Fraser in his big comeback year, because he's got that and he's got the Scorsese coming out next year as yes. well. Yes. Yes. So, who knows? I mean, yeah. <laughs> even though Aronofsky's movies don't always do well at the Oscars, he gets he gets acting nominations. He got Burston, he got Rourke and Tomei, Natalie Portman won. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Mother didn't get any nominations, but like Jennifer yeah. Lawrence, a distant contender there, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Obviously, we're close, but... Yeah, <laughs> I think that one's more understandable as to why it didn't yeah. get the Oscar nominations. Yeah, but... Uh, Here's hoping for Brandon Fraser. I know that's a, it's a very particular role uh, that we're going to be looking to for that because he's. Yeah. I'm I don't super even know what to say about the way. Yeah. Uh, it looks. It. I. I've seen images from the play that it's based on, and it looks like a very. Uh, there's potential for it to go very wrong. I'll say <laughs> with how they deal with that character, uh, but we'll see. We'll see what ends up there. Yeah. I, ho- I hope it's great. I hope it gets what it deserves at the Oscars. If it's good. <laughs> if it's good. Uh, I mean, it's got a good cast to it. Who else? Uh, Samantha Morton, uh, mm-hmm. Hong Chow. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone else attached, but like those are all actors that I, I trust to do. And I really want to see what they do under Aronofsky's direction because he gets yep. really good performances from his actors. He does. Um, let's talk about best actors this year. Let's talk right. about this lineup. Do you have uh, Do you have them necessarily ranked in any way? Do we um, to I think if I looked at the list, then yes. Um, okay. I didn't really think about it exactly. So well, while you do that, I'm going to start out with my uh, number five in the lineup, and I I yes. already said so, but it's Juliette Binoche and Chocolat, and I liked I I really like Juliette Binoche as an actress. I think she's been really great in a lot of things. I think she's really good in Three Colors Blue. Mm-hmm. I actually think she's not that bad in The English Patient, which won her an Oscar. Yeah, she's a generally a very consistent actress, but I think there's just not a lot for her to do in Chocolat. I think Chocolat is, it has a reputation for being bad, but I think it's not bad as much as it is just like boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that would also be my number five. It was, I just don't, I got the least out of it, I think, yeah. while watching it. Um, and her performance, and while it, it might not be my least favorite movie out of the nominees, um, I don't think her performance does anything great for the movie. So my number four would be Joan Allen in The Contender. Um, I, I like The Contender more than its re- reputation has. I think it's a pretty solid movie, a solid political sort of drama thriller. And I think Joan Allen is actually really good in it but just compared to these other 
performances that are up there, hers doesn't necessarily hold up. And the other movies have held up a lot more. Like there's, there's some questionable sort of uh, message work going on in The Contender and what mm-hmm. it's saying about politics and sex. And the ending kind of like that was the movie a little bit. It kind of like, I don't know. But she's she's still good throughout. I don't think she's giving a bad performance by any means. And I think Joan Allen is also a very talented actress. That it's a shame that this is her last Oscar nomination. I, I'd I'd really like to see her come back in a big way. I think she's more than overdue for a comeback. Yeah. I agree. I I would have her as my number four as well. Maybe I think I like her it a bit more um, than Juliette Binoche. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie overall. Um, I didn't really get much out of it. But I do think her, um, her performance was well done enough for the movie. And she is a really good actress overall besides this movie. But yeah. I'm just not a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I, I think she's, she's pretty good in this. My number three, um, I'd, I'd say Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich, which I know that's to some sacrilege. I think she's still really great in that movie. I think that's a really fantastic movie star performance that really Mm -hmm. gets a lot of what people love about Julia Roberts as an actress. And I think she translates that really well into this character and really sells. I, I, she just really carries that. Like that movie works as well as it does because you have Julia Roberts at the center. I don't think you get what that, I, I don't think you get a movie that's as well held together without that, without that specific type of like A-lister movie star charismatic performance at the center of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. She, she brings a lot to the movie, which I feel like without her, it would feel almost bland. Yeah. Um, my number three would probably be Laura Lenny. I really, really do like her performance and I like her as an actress overall, but I think again with um, the contender, I didn't like the movie that much. And I know that there's a lot of people that do like this. Um, I just, I I came out of it not really liking the characters that much. Um, They seemed like people that I didn't really connect with. And I think Laura Linney did a good job in that role. Uh, Just for the writing of the character, I didn't connect with it a lot. It didn't bring out a lot of emotion in me. So it was not, not forgettable, but just not as memorable as other movies in this category. Yeah, that's fair. I, I would I would put Linny as my number two. I think she does. I mean, Laura Linney is one of those actresses uh, that I think no matter what she's in, she's always going to be compelling. She's never going to half-ass a performance or give in a performance that's anything other than very magnetic, even if she's playing kind of an asshole. Yeah. Like <laughs> Savages, which is another movie where she and her brother have a very specific uh, like adult brother sister dynamic, um, and I think she's even better in that than she is in this. But I think she's really good, and you can count on me. Mm-hmm. I really like her back and forth with Ruffalo, and how like she she comes across very well as a concerned older sister of like kind of a fuck up, but she still loves him even if he is really throwing a wrench into her whole, her whole life. Mm-hmm. I really like her stuff with Matthew Broderick. Uh, even though that's like something that she does really well throughout her career is play kind of like women that make bad choices in their life and are like kind of 
not the best people, but you still are compelled to watch because Laura Linney is so uh, compelling as an actress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I feel a lot of that. In, I feel a lot of that in Ozark. Now I haven't seen all of Ozark. I think I've only seen like season one, but still, she's very compelling in that role yeah. that she fits into. Yeah, I think she does a really good job of playing like flawed, but still like women that you still want to root for, even though they have those uh, very glaring character flaws. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think she's really good and you can count on me. Yeah. In another year, she very well could have been my winner. Mm-hmm. You know who at number one. <laughs> yeah, my number two is Julia Roberts. Um, I, I'm surprised I hadn't seen it. Like, I, I think I watched it um, this week or about a week ago and it was good. I enjoyed the movie and I think she just brings a lot into the movie. And she, I think what she did for that role um, is a big reason as to why I, I like her performance a lot. Um, it's very impactful. Um, it's very bright. Like she brings a lot to a character that another actor might not have brought to the role. She's really electric in that movie. And like, even though she's my number three, I have no fault with that win. I think it's a, it's a, really, it's a really good way to reward that type of movie star performance. I know other people have said that. I'm not uh, coming up with that sort of terminology on my own here, but like she takes that, she does that really well. And I think that's a really deserving win, even if yeah. she's number three. Like that's how good this lineup is, is that I have her ranked number three and I still, I, I really like that performance and that win. Yep. And then obviously we have the same number one. It's Ellen <laughs> uh, for all the reasons that we've talked about uh, up top, but yeah, no, like it's a, it's a really solid lineup and it's a really solid year too with, so with Bjork and Michelle Yeoh both yep. on the outskirts. And I haven't seen Nurse Betty, but Renee Zellweger won the Comedy Globe. And I haven't seen The House of Mirth, but Gillian Anderson is another actress that I really like. Uh, and, I would have really liked to see Michelle Yeoh get in as a nomination because yeah. she was she was fantastic. That whole movie is really really great. That's a great movie, and it's like so depressing that a movie like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon gets ten Oscar nominations: Best Picture, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay. It wins like four of those ten, mm-hmm. and even still, doesn't get any acting nominations. Like you see okay. that again with Parasite another movie that does really well with the Oscars has an all Asian cast and all the actors get completely left off. Like there's still only ever been one uh, actress of Asian descent to get a lead actress Oscar nomination. And that was in the early days of Hollywood. And she like was perceived as white and hid that part of her identity because she had to, to be a star. And like, it still never happened since then. Aquafina got the snub for, the farewell a few years ago. Oh, mm-hmm. I really would have liked to see someone like Michelle Yeoh get that nomination because she's so good in that movie. It's a really, a really subtle, powerful performance. From it her. really is. Yeah, it's it's something that I think is understated or that you don't hear as much about because you hear a lot about the cinematography and the direction, but you don't hear a lot about her performance. And I think that's really something that should be talked about more. Yeah, her and uh, Zhang Ziyi. She's mm-hmm. also really great. And she's maybe a co-lead that got demoted to supporting, but yeah. she would have been a, a really worthy nominee in either category as well. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about supporting actress too. Uh, we don't have to go into it as much as we just did on lead actress, but Jennifer Connelly uh, missed out here 
yep. probably wasn't all that close considering the content of her performance and what mm. happens to her and what she has to go through. That's yep. uh, not the kind of acting that they go for. It's completely understandable that the one aspect of this movie that the Oscars actually nominated was the one that has nothing to do with the heroine plotline yeah. <laughs> at all. Like, that seems very intentional. Yep. Because uh, they, they weren't going to go anywhere near... Like, I don't think this was close to any other nominations, even something mm-hmm. like editing or photography or score. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is, a, this is a pretty solid supporting actress lineup as well. Again, outside of mm-hmm. Chevrolet. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's fine as the sort of cantankerous old Judy Dench type yeah. uh, in that movie, but the, the other four are actually really great. Marsha Gay Harden, like we said, wins, which is one of the great Oscar moments. It's such a surprising win because she misses out on all those uh, industry awards and she gets up there uh, and she's holding the award. And the first thing she says, what a thrill. <laughs> I love that. So that's like one of the great Oscar moments of mm-hmm. the century. But Kate Hudson and uh, Frances McDormand are both nominated for Almost Famous. They're both great. And Julie Walters for Billy Elliot, which I also just watched this weekend. And she's really great in that too. That, that's, I, that's a movie that like affected me a lot more than I expected it to. Like there were several yeah. moments where I was on the verge of tears <laughs> like, throughout that whole last act. Mm-hmm. But like happy tears, tears of like, it's working out. Every, everyone is good. Not the kind of tears that you get during Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, it's, that's it's the kind of making you cry that the Oscars are going to nominate for director and screenplay. Yeah, so. but it's a very different uh, sort of movie. And you can sort of see that in the awards that it gets or is nominated for. Um, and you can kind of tell that there's like a, a theme with it as to why Holly wouldn't have gotten nominated in this category. Yeah. And like Kate Hudson does suffer in almost famous. Like she overdoses and she has the sort of fraught relationship with Billy Crudup's character, which one is the one that she's, I think it's Billy Crudup is the, the member of the band that she's involved with that sort of like is kind of awful to her. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, that's still, in the end, a hopeful movie, a, a very, yes. like, audience-friendly movie, especially. And she is a lot, even though she has those sort of darker moments uh, and that sort of darker side to her character, she still comes out on top, more or less. A lot more so, at least, and, than Marius <laughs> yes. does. In very, very much so. Yeah, uh, I'm looking through my notes here. I don't have all that much more to say. Oh, uh, the editing. Let's uh, give me a second to pull up what the other nominees were in the other categories that we talked about. So editing this year. I always forget that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon didn't win this because this feels like the kind of uh, thing that it would have won. Traffic ends up winning for editing, which I guess makes sense because it gets, uh, it has those three storylines that it's cutting back between and they always love multiple storyline uh, stories here. Mm-hmm. For Requiem for a Dream. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but other nominees, uh, Almost Famous, Gladiator, which wins Best Picture, so of course it's going to be there, and Wonder Boys, which is a weird pick uh, for editing specifically 
especially over something like Requiem for a Dream or even Billy Elliot or uh, Aaron Brockovich, which are uh, do better with the Oscars than Wonder Boys does. But that's edited by Dee Dee Allen, who's like an editing legend. She'd been nominated only two other times before, I think, even though she'd had such a career. Yeah, she'd been nominated for Dog Day Afternoon and Reds, but she was also the editor on The Hustler and Bonnie and Clyde and stuff like uh, Slapshot and The Breakfast Club. Uh, Yeah, so like, even if the movie doesn't necessarily have the most uh, flashy editing, you, you can see why it gets the nomination for her. She's yeah, exactly. a legend. Yeah, you, you look at this and you, you see the lineup and you can tell why Requiem for a Dream doesn't get in, not just because of the content of the movie, but because of these movies and how these are such Oscar darlings, but also Dee Dee Allen. And it's just, it's, it, it would have been hard for Requiem for a Dream to get into this lineup. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The score lineup uh, is Crouching Tiger, which ends up winning Chocolat, uh, Gladiator. Those both make sense. Those are those are pretty good scores. And then uh, two movies that I haven't seen, but that show up in a lot of these sort of below-the-line categories. Uh, Malena, which is... Uh, it's, an, it's an Ennio Morricone nomination, so that makes sense. And then The Patriot, which is John Williams, which also makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you have Ennio Morricone and John Williams making scores in a given year, they're going to get the nomination. Yep. (laughs) Uh, I have not seen those movies, though, or heard those scores, so I don't have anything to say on that. The sound nominees, Gladiator wins, Castaway gets a nomination, which is uh, the reason that I can't talk about Castaway on this podcast, because that's the only nomination it gets other than Tom Hanks, which is weird. (laughs) Uh, the Patriot, again, gets a sound nomination. It's a period mm-hmm. war film. Of course, it's going to get a nomination. Uh, the Perfect Storm, which it's a disaster movie set at sea. Of course, that's going to get a nomination. <laughs> and U571, which is also a, uh, it's a submarine movie, and that wins the Sound Editing Award. So, of course, that's going to get a nomination. Yeah, They like their boat movies. Case <laughs> point. This past year's Greyhound, which got a sound nomination. You yep. know, nobody saw Greyhound. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting to to look at all these categories, what made it in and why Requiem for a Dream didn't. Yeah, like a three-time Oscar nominee and winner, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Mm-hmm. Winner for makeup, a nominee for art direction and Oh, I just lost it. Uh, and costume design. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yep. And then cinematography. Uh, again, Milena and The Patriot, which I haven't seen, so I can't speak to that. But then Crouching Tiger wins. Gladiator makes sense as a nominee. And Roger Deakins' is, uh, cinematography for Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is another really good choice. It is, yes. Yeah. That's a really good lineup from what I've yeah. seen. Again. Haven't seen Milena, haven't seen The Patriot. The other three make sense. Gladiator, uh, for as much as that movie sometimes doesn't work, I think it still re- looks really good. And obviously Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a gorgeous movie. Yes. Uh, and this, the camera work on that, especially in those action scenes, is really inspired. I think that's a really good win. I wouldn't take that away, even if Requiem was there. Yeah, it it's fantastic. Uh, 
whenever I go back to watch it, it really just kind of surprises me over and over again. And it's, it's one of the best, most memorable parts of that movie. Yeah. We haven't talked all that much about the screenplay. I don't know if, like, it's a, it's a good screenplay. It's not anything you think about, like, yeah. One of the last parts you think about about this movie is the actual writing of it. But this is a, a again, outside of Chocolat, a really good uh, adapted screenplay not, uh, lineup. Mm-hmm. Traffic ends up winning, which is, uh, again, a really good screenplay. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Also, not necessarily the first thing you think about there, but another really good screenplay. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, which I think had been, it like, it's, not the only time it's happened for the Coens, but it was campaigned in original, I believe, in original screenplay. But, but nominated for, yeah, adapted. Because it has that title card at the beginning that says, like, uh, based on Homer's Odyssey. Oh. <laughs> that was ruled uh, by the uh, screenplay uh, board or the screenplay sort of, what's the word I'm thinking? Branch. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that uh, was enough for it to be considered adapted. So it, got the nomination there, which that also happened for uh, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was campaigned in original uh, because most of those stories were original, but because I think two of them were based on short stories, it ended up getting that adapted screenplay nomination, which mm-hmm. I always forget it got. Yeah. <laughs> Buster Scruggs <laughs> is a screenplay nominee. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Wonder Boys, which is also a really, a really solid screenplay. I, don't, I, I mean, again, choke a lot, except... Yeah. Uh, I don't think I would have put Requiem in any of, over any of those four. And if I were to look at what my other favorites of the year were, I don't think Requiem would have probably taken that fifth slot either. Yeah, it's not really an aspect of the film that I, I think about a lot. I think most of the stuff surrounding the screenplay is what makes the movie shine. Um, and how, yeah, how the screenplays worked around and not the actual screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, it's... The dialogue, again, is not necessarily what you come to for this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a lot of visual. And I mean, I mean that, that uh, not argument scene, but the confrontation scene between uh, Harry and Sarah is really well written. Mm-hmm. But again, yeah, that, that, that scene is, does really stand out, I think, amongst others as having really good dialogue, um, especially when she's going on the monologue about her husband and him never visiting, all that stuff, I think, really brings out something special in there. And then uh, we mentioned earlier, hair and makeup uh, is the, the design and that is really good, even if it is pretty grotesque. Yeah. Um, the Grinch ends up winning here against the cell, uh, Tarsen's the cell and Shadow of the Vampire, which is the reason I don't get to talk about Shadow of the Vampire on this podcast, <laughs> uh, which it's deeply funny to me that out of Willem Dafoe's four Oscar nominations, two of them are movies I get to talk about and that doesn't include Shadow of the Vampire. <laughs> because that feels so much like a movie I would that fits in with these other movies I get to talk about. But I don't, because it got a, a makeup nomination. And deservedly so. The makeup in that is really good. Have you seen that one? I haven't, no. I'll it's have to really good. Out. It's about the making of Nosferatu. And oh, Will really? Poe plays Max Shrek, who played Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. But the movie uh, presents it that he was an actual vampire that they found and <laughs> cast in the movie. He's great. It's, it's a really great performance from him. Uh, and mm. It's a solid movie from what I remember, but he's fantastic in it. No surprises. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. 
I don't have really any other thoughts on the Oscars, really. I mean, there's not much to hypothesize about why it didn't get nominated. It's an NC-17 movie with yeah. that ending. It's, yeah. ne- it's never going to get nominated for anything else, as we have mentioned. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's pretty um, straightforward as to why it got the nomination it did, but also why it didn't get others. Yeah, it, it's kind of the encapsulation of this set of movies. Like, you look at that, and at first you think, wow, that's a movie that is uh, beloved culturally. But then you think about it, and like, yeah, it makes sense why this movie didn't really gel with the Oscars, but why this performance did. Yes. It's a, it's a pretty believable uh, entry into this canon. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, uh, let's give our final thoughts on this movie. So uh, what other nominations in your fantasy world where you're not bound by NC-17s and unlikable characters and all that, uh, what nominations would you personally have given Requiem for a Dream? Um, personally, I 100% would have gone for sound design, sound editing, what, what they were calling it back then. Um, yeah. uh, cinematography, editing, uh, score that's probably Absolutely the biggest score. one in my opinion yeah no like that's it's such a good score mm-hmm. i i would have liked jennifer Connolly for supporting actress um and aronofsky getting a directing nomination and it's one of my favorite movies of the year 2000 so obviously i would have loved the best picture nomination too um, yeah yeah if this were if the oscars were more of a retrospect thing if there was more time to sort of look back on what movies hold up what mm-hmm. sort of gets left in the dust of awards. This movie you could see ending up with a much higher vote tally of people looking back fondly on it as an experience. And I think uh, that's what's interesting about looking back on the Oscars as a whole is seeing what movies uh, do and don't hold up. But yeah, I completely agree on a lot of those. I think score, sound, editing, cinematography, makeup like i said yes and Connolly would both easily make my lineup i don't think either of the male actors would have i think they're good but this is all around a really great year for acting Mm -hmm. Um, i don't think they necessarily live up to uh what the other contenders would have been aronofsky again i think would have been a really solid contender for best director and then yeah uh especially in a field of 10 uh, i think this would have been a really solid Uh, best picture nominee like we said with the whole game with the afi game like this makes more sense i you wonder if this were if the oscars had expanded out to a year of 10 uh a field of 10 best picture nominees if something Mm -hmm. like this which is maybe too divisive in a lot of categories yeah but on a plurality vote or especially a lot of voters that appreciate the filmmaking necessarily more than they appreciate the experience you wonder if this might have been number 10 or 11 in that lineup yeah i think it definitely had a chance for yeah. that if it was expanded to 10 what do you think those 10 would be do you, should, i know yeah. we're, we're like at the end of the episode but let's play that game all um, right i'm let me pull up the list again i think billy elliott easily makes it in there it gets the director nomination mm-hmm. it's acting nomination screenplay nomination just those three but i think those are solid enough three that it it gets in there mm-hmm. probably almost famous too i, I mean it yeah. wins the original screenplay over gladiator mm-hmm. and aaron brockovich 
I think it would. Um, yeah, I think that's solidly in there. What else? Uh, maybe Wonder Boys. I mean, it, it got the editing. Yeah, it, yeah, it did get and a D. But the thing with that, though, is that Michael Douglas was like such a contender and best actor, and then he misses out on the nomination. I wonder if maybe Wonder Boys maybe hit at the wrong time, if it mm-hmm. was missing that, even though he was considered like a sure bet. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot that really got uh, a lot of nominations. There were some that got a few, like um, You Can Count on Me, um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou had the screenplay nomination, and yeah, there was like some below-the-line stuff like The Patriot, but I... Oh, um, I wonder if maybe Quills, because um, it gets the Best Actor nomination for Jeffrey Rush, Mm-hmm. And I think Kate Winslet might have gotten a SAG nomination, but it also was New York Film Critics or something. One of those critical places uh, that picks their best movie of the year mm-hmm. picked it as their best movie of the year. And it's one of those places where like they have a really good track record outside of, I think they picked first cow this year and that mm-hmm. was an outlier and they picked a most violent year in 2014. And that was an outlier. But I wonder if something like Quills might've, been able to get in there even though it misses out on some other stuff even though that only gets three nominations yeah i think the same with um before night falls when you were running through a lot of the nominations and what was what requiem for a dream was going up against it was um it was in there quite a lot it was getting some some buzz and javier bardem does get the uh acting nomination yeah i could see that um i'm looking through oh you know what I think might have actually been uh, in that 10th slot? Hmm. I think Pollock. Because oh, Jay yeah. Harden ends up winning uh-huh. uh, even above uh, the two from Almost Famous yeah. and Judy and Julie Walters. I think, I think Pollock actually might have been that 10th. Or maybe even Castaway. I know it's a, a disappointment as far as nominations. It only gets Tom Hanks and the Sound nomination. Yeah. I mean, this was Zemeckis coming off of Forrest Gump, which obviously does really well, and then Gump. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, I could definitely see that. Yeah, so Almost Famous, Billy Elliot, Wonder Boys, Pollock. Pollock, yeah. I would say Pollock if Almost Famous is in. Yeah, and then what's our 10? What is our 10th? I don't think it would be Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that would have been nice. <laughs> maybe Oh Brother. That I'm looking at the screenplay stuff. Yeah, that yeah. screenplay nomination. Yeah, is is selling me on Oh Brother. Where are that? Okay, so Best Picture Field of Ten. You get Billy Elliot added. You get Almost Famous. You get Wonder Boys, Pollock, and Oh Brother. Where are that? I think that, that's that's a pretty representative top 10 i think so too yeah okay yeah uh, i guess that's our episode then uh zach do you have any anything you want to plug any social media anywhere you want to uh you want the people to find you yeah um i post on instagram sometimes like once a month on a teen film reviewer if you want to go follow me there um and i have a letterbox too Uh, it's pasta cereal um (laughs) yeah uh that's that's really all um yeah okay cool and you can follow the podcast uh on twitter and letterboxd at lone acting noms 
and on Instagram at the Lone Acting Nominees. Uh, so that's it for our episode. Thank you for listening.